subject that I've chosen to preach about this morning is a very familiar passage. Probably a lot of you have memorized it already. And I'm sure a lot of sermons have been preached about it. But I'm not apologizing for preaching it again because I was trying to think if I can remember any sermon I heard on the subject. And I can't. I forgot those sermons. And that's the way people are. We need to be reminded continually. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if you'd forget most of what I say by tomorrow. But I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I'm going to preach about four verses in Colossians chapter 3. <clears throat> I think I'll read those verses to start with. Colossians chapter 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. It's going to be kind of a... uh, expository sermon, maybe, if you put it that way. First phrase there, if ye then be risen with Christ. That first word says if, and if we just take that by itself, we would think possibly we are, possibly we aren't. It's a question if, if we are. But I think it's actually more of a As we look at the phrase, it should maybe be, since we are risen with Christ. And that is referring to something he said before. And I think that was in chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. He's saying that we went through this process. We were baptized. We were raised with Christ. And since we are risen then the rest of the chapter should apply too. What does it mean to be risen from the dead? When something is dead, there is no response to any stimulus. You can shine lights in the eyes, you can punch them, whatever. There's no response. Completely irresponsive. irresponsive. And there's no strength. No strength at all. Only decay. Only things are going downhill. And life, of course, is just the opposite. When there's life, there's response to stimulus. There is strength. There is growth. There is change for the better. And as I was thinking about this, how God changes us from death to life, or he did that with Christ... Is that a greater demonstration of God's power than creating life in the first place? Taking something that is going downhill and restoring it to perfection. 
kind of seems to me maybe it is, but I don't know for sure. <clears throat> but I know when Christ was raised from the dead, that that was something that was completely unheard of. And as we think of uh, God creating life, he's still doing that today. We have several new babies among us. A year ago, there was nothing. And God is creating life. He is still creating life. That's something we're kind of used to. But somebody raised from the dead, we're not used to. It seems like it's a greater demonstration of God's power. Now let's think a little bit about how Christ was raised. When he died, he was completely dead, just like anything else that dies. There was no response, there was no power, no strength. He was completely dead. <clears throat> but when, God's, when he raised to life, it was a glorious resurrection. It was, <clears throat> I don't think that the angels rolled the stone away. I think it was Christ's power that just rolled the stone away. He was beyond being subject to death again. And he could, I mean, his life was far superior to what it was before. He could appear and disappear whenever he wanted to. I'm not sure what all power he had. We know that that happened while he was here on earth after he was raised to life. But it was a glorious resurrection. Um, there were other people that were raised to life. Back in the Old Testament, I think it was Elisha, raised a boy to life. and um, Jesus raised Lazarus to life. But those people were still subject to death. They went through death again. And now we are raised with Christ, so our resurrection is comparable to Christ's. And as I think about that, our resurrection is supposed to be a glorious one like Christ. But does it really compare to that? As we were dead in sins and now we walk in newness of life, but are we not subject to dying again? That's always a threat that comes to us in our spiritual life of falling away and dying. So it seems like it doesn't really compare with Christ's resurrection. It's not as glorious, but in God's eyes, it's glorious because he compares it the same. If ye be risen with Christ, that's the way our resurrection is supposed to look. So if that has happened, we are to seek those things which are above. And that's probably the main focus of the message. Seeking those things above. <clears throat> As I thought of seeking and different examples in the Bible of seeking, I was reminded of the account in Luke 15:4, where Jesus said, What man of you having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, and doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? And also a couple verses later in chapter verse 8 either what woman having ten pieces of silver if she lose one piece doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it we notice the diligence that these people had to find what they were seeking it says in both accounts until the first count until he find it and until she find it it was like there wasn't a question of giving up they were going to go after it until they find it. And I think that's the way that we need to seek the things that are above. Seek them diligently until we find them. 
So what are the things that we seek for? It says we're supposed to seek things above. And then it describes exactly where that is. That's where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. So that means heaven, right? In a literal way, it almost seems like it. That's where Christ is. <clears throat> so what are we supposed to seek for? Are we supposed to look for chunks of gold from the streets or maybe a fruit from the tree of life or maybe a pearl that fell from the gate? Is that what we're supposed to look for? Well, we can't because we aren't there. So how can we seek for things in a place where we are not? And we can't go to seek them in heaven. But God has arranged it that we can seek for things in heaven while we're on earth. <clears throat> Our resurrection is a spiritual one, and so the things we seek also are spiritual things. Seeking the things that are spiritual. Seeking the things that are a delight to God, seeking the things that are like God's character, turning away from the things that our flesh wants to seek after and seeking after the things that God wants, seeking to imitate God. <clears throat> so what's God like? I had to think of what uh, he told Moses when he revealed himself to Moses. You know, he put Moses in a cleft of the rock and passed by. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, he said, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. So that's what God said about himself. He was lifting up his glorious attributes toward mankind. He didn't say the Lord, the creator, the, the one with all wisdom, even though those are attributes of God, but he lifted up his mercy and grace and his goodness and truth. There's also a list further down in Colossians 3. I think I'll read that, 12 to 17. <clears throat> Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, Holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to, to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And I also thought of James 1.27, the last verse there where it says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widow in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And also in Matthew 25, where he gave the account of Jesus sitting at the judgment seat and all people coming before him, and some he put on the right hand, some on the left hand. 
The ones on the right hand were the ones that fed the hungry and gave drink to the thirsty and clothed the naked, visited the ones in prison, were hospitable to people. And they weren't aware of what they were even doing. <clears throat> but Jesus, oh, Jesus said that you have done that to me. And they said, when did we ever do that? And Jesus said, because you did it to the least of these, my brethren. Anytime there was an opportunity to do good, they were willing to do it, <clears throat> to reach out and help people. Some other practical ways, even that we can seek those things above. We can go to church. I would hope that the fact that you're here this morning means that you're seeking the things above. There could be other reasons to come. There's social benefits and those kind of things, but I hope that the underlying purpose is because you want to learn more of God. Read and memorize the Bible and meditate on it. I think it actually mentioned that in Colossians there. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Follow the golden rule, and the list could go on and on. <clears throat> I think for the most part, we pretty well know what things would be included in seeking the things above. What are those things? We probably pretty well know. But the difficulty comes in applying them to every situation. As I thought about, uh, I don't know, the different things that we face in life, it seemed like there was three categories that would apply in this situation. One is um, sinful things. The next category is temporal things. And the third category is heavenly things. Sometimes it's just a matter of, of making a choice, choosing righteousness instead of sin. We're tempted to sin, but we turn away from that and, and turn to righteousness. That's a way of seeking the things above. But other times it means a choice between temporal things and heavenly things, and that's more of a difficult choice. Because the temporal things in themselves are not wrong. But they can drag us down. But instead of focusing on the temporal, we need to focus on the heavenly things. It means turning away from the temporal things, or how should I say, quitting them, even though there's nothing wrong, and making a special effort and seeking after the things above. When we get to help people, like it talked in Matthew there, Matthew 25, uh, feeding the hungry and giving a drink to thirsty and on and on, that is more of a, a concentrated effort of seeking the things above rather than just a simple choice of right and wrong. It takes more effort to do those things. And it's so easy to neglect that. It's so easy to just relax. And, well, I think I'm going to check email instead of reading the Bible or, you know, that kind of thing. It's very easy to do that. And I don't think that we need to feel guilty every time we're checking email, but just check our lives. How, how is it working out in our lives? Are we truly seeking the things above? We need to seek them because they don't just happen without seeking, especially the things of helping other people. It takes effort to do that. And seeking is not easy. The flesh doesn't like to do that. 
The flesh wants to just settle down and be comfortable. And sometimes searching seems fruitless or seeking those things above seems fruitless. We spend a lot of time and effort to try to help someone and it all ends in seemingly a worthless situation. The person didn't seem to enjoy that being helped or whatever. So what's the use of seeking those things above? <clears throat> but we daresn't give up. In Galatians 6, 9 it says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And also we need to search until we find like those two accounts in Luke, the man that lost a sheep and the woman that lost a coin. Seek until we find those things above. And then the last phrase in that verse says, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. As I was considering this, it seemed like that completes the picture of our resurrection. We were raised with Christ from deadness to newness of life, but Christ didn't stay on earth, he went to heaven. <clears throat> and that's where our desires and our thoughts are supposed to go, with Christ in heaven. Seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. So our spiritual life, in a sense, goes to heaven with Christ. And then in the next verse it says, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Is that saying the same thing? Setting our affection on things above as seeking? It gives a little different aspect of it. It indicates a conscious choice of putting our affections where they belong. The earth has such a strong pull that if we don't make a conscious choice, the earth will have our affections. It will just naturally go to the things of earth. I don't know if you ever have that problem of setting something down where you aren't conscious of where you're setting it and later on you come back and where did I put that thing? I'm looking and looking for it. That has happened to me numerous times, especially if I'm working on something in the shop. I set it down just wherever I happen to be. I got to spend five minutes looking for that piece, whatever it was. I just can't believe I can't find it. But it's because I was not conscious of where I put it down. I didn't put it in a place where I know where to find it next time. Well, that's kind of the way it is with setting our affection on things above. Make a conscious choice so we know where they are. <clears throat> and then also, make sure our heart is in our seeking. That's what it's saying here. Don't just seek the things above because we know it's the thing to do. Okay, I'm supposed to read my Bible today, so I read my Bible. And I know I'm supposed to memorize, so I memorize the Bible. And it could apply to all the different things that we're seeking. But make sure our heart is in it. Set your affection, the things we like, on things above, not on things on the earth. Jesus kind of said the same thing in Matthew 6, 19 to 21. It says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
I'd like to compare this to a bank. <clears throat> we usually put our money in the bank when we're here on earth to keep it somewhat safe. But let's compare the bank on earth compared to a bank, the bank in heaven. On earth, the banks all say that they are federally insured, $100,000, whatever. They'll guarantee that you're going to get your money out of it at least up to $100,000 if the bank fails. But banks are all somewhat interconnected, and if banks start failing, it can be a kind of a domino effect where one bank fails, another bank fails, and <clears throat> they're kind of interconnected. But the bank in heaven is totally independent. It will never be effect affected by any problems here on earth, completely independent. Another advantage of the bank in heaven is that the banker is all-knowing. He has perfect insight to any future investments, which can't be said of any bank on earth. So therefore, it's very safe to follow his advice. It's perfect in security, and it says that, yeah, if men could foresee financial disaster, they wouldn't go there, but we can't foresee things like that. But the banker in heaven can. And of course, the bank in heaven can never be broken into. It can never be robbed, and our treasures there will always be kept safe. And the fourth point is, um, when you go to another country, you need to change currency into the currency of that country to be able to buy and sell. We can't go to other countries and use a dollar, for most of them anyway, use our money to buy things there. We need to change into that currency. And it's the same way with heaven. We need to change our treasures into the currency of heaven. Because at the time of death, we're going to need that to get across Jordan. We're going to need the currency that's in heaven. <clears throat> and only the heavenly currency will work. So therefore, it's important that we lay up treasures in heaven. And that's how, um, as we set our affection on things above, that's what we're doing. Laying up treasures in heaven, not on things on the earth. Okay, verse 3. For ye are dead... And your life is hid with Christ in God. For ye are dead. I thought we were risen. First verse says we are risen with Christ, but now he says ye are dead. I think Paul likes paradoxes, doesn't he? <clears throat> Basically what he's saying there is that we were dead in sin, and then we were raised, and now we are dead to sin. Sin has no longer, no longer has an effect on us. It shouldn't anyway. Let's think a little bit about, well, in the rest of the phrase there, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Let's think a little bit about our relationship with Christ and the different ways it's described here. Um, first verse, it says, risen with Christ. The third verse here, it says, hid with Christ in God. <clears throat> and uh, I think there was a verse back here I was going to read and I didn't <clears throat> no
No, it's still coming. Um, <clears throat> in Galatians 2.20, it kind of describes this same situation as we have in verse 3. For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Kind of describes the same situation. And here it says that Christ liveth in me. So we were raised with Christ, we were hidden with Christ, hidden in Christ, and Christ liveth inside of us. That relationship that we have with Christ is different than we can have with anyone else. Our relationship with others is totally based on outside um, connections or influences. We talk with people. We communicate back and forth, either by words or by actions or looks. But it's all outside influence. But with Christ living within us, he influences us from the inside. He puts different thoughts in us. He changes our thought patterns. When Christ is within, we have a new thought pattern that loves God and his will and wants to do his will. And that turns away from sin, which is a new thing. Before that, we all wanted our own way. We wanted, maybe didn't want to sin, but we couldn't help ourselves because our hearts were that direction. But now that Christ lives within us, we have a new thought pattern. Are we allowing him to influence our thoughts? That's a question that I had to think. Am I truly allowing him to influence my thoughts the way I should be? If I'm truly crucified to the world and raised with Christ. And then the last verse, when Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. That's the rewards of seeking those things that are above. Someday we will come out of hiding with Christ and we will appear with him in glory. We will appear with him on the victory side. I've noticed the phrase especially when Christ who is our life. That is a very key part of this verse. If Christ is not our life, we won't appear with him in glory. If Christ is not our life, our, in other words, if we don't have Christ, we don't have life. Do we realize the importance of that? Is that reality in our life, that we are that desperate to be in Christ? It's so easy to um, have that little bit foggy and obscure in our life, that how much we need Christ. <clears throat> but I think that is so important that we can appear with him in glory if he is our life. Then in closing, I'd like to read a saying that I read that I thought was a very good, uh, kind of brought everything together about seeking things above. By degrees there shall be in every such seeker a change of places between earth and heaven. In other words, we are slowly changed from earthly thoughts and earthly things to heavenly things, continually becoming more and more heavenly minded. From seeking he shall rise to thinking the things above, and when at last the door opens and he is called in to see the king in his beauty, 
he shall find himself in no strange place or company. We will be comfortable where we are in heaven. We will be familiar with that place if we seek those things while we are on earth. <laughs>